and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. New Zealand is one of many countries pledging to reduce our net emissions of greenhouse gases to zero by 2050. So what does that actually mean? What are the practicalities of the push to net zero? What will it mean for the lives and livelihoods of New Zealanders and the New Zealand economy? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Christina Hood. She's the head of Compass Climate. Hi, Christina, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Look, before we we jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Compass Climate and also your background, um, because you've got a lot of experience and expertise around climate issues? Sure. So at Compass Climate, I am a consultant in energy and climate policy. I've done work for the New Zealand government, but more recently a lot of work for uh, NGOs, actually, so helping them to understand a little bit more of the content around climate policy to to participate in some of the more technical public debates that are going on. Before coming back to New Zealand in 2018, I was at the International Energy Agency in Paris, so I was head of the climate unit there, and that was um, a great time to be in Paris because that was when the Paris Agreement was signed and I was uh, involved in some of the development of of that agreement. Great. So you are a a perfect guest to discuss um, all these issues. So look, obviously, um, as I said, New Zealand's one of many countries that's pledged to reduce our net emissions of greenhouse gases to zero by 2050. We're in the process of forming a new government, which will be led by the National Party, which says it is fully committed to net zero by 2050, as Labour was before it. Um, So look, just to kick us off, what actually is net zero? What does it mean? So it's a concept that basically says that we're no longer contributing to climate change, essentially. Um, The emissions from fossil fuel burning, particularly carbon dioxide, accumulate in the atmosphere. So every time we use fossil fuels and release those emissions, more and more of it goes into the atmosphere. And so the concentration in the atmosphere goes up and up and up, and that makes temperature go keep going up and up and up. Um, The idea of net zero is when we are no longer adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere anymore. So for every unit that gets emitted up into the atmosphere, a unit is taken out by forestry or some other sort of removal. So we're in balance, essentially. That's the concept. And that that needs to happen at global level, but it can also be a concept that applies at country level for individual companies, communities, or even individuals. Okay. And where did the idea of net zero come from in the sense of, um, you know, this is the, the, the way we should go about tackling climate change? What are the origins of the idea? Yeah, it's a really interesting history. So since the 1990s, when the world started working on climate change, there's always been a focus on reducing emissions. But this concept of having to get to net zero is a relatively new one. It's really only since about 2009 that this has been the main driver of the thinking. And it was some scientific work that really showed very clearly that the temperature that we end up with is basically directly related to the total quantity of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere before we stop. So the question that we have is that once we reach net zero, how much has been emitted to the atmosphere in the meantime? And that's what determines where we end up in this temperature. So it's actually a really interesting and important thing for people to understand that when we get to this magical point of net zero, climate impacts don't go away. 
we've already locked them in, the temperature stays the same. When we reach net zero, we just stop making it worse. And the longer we take to reach net zero, the more of that damage that we lock in. So there's obviously a lot of water that's going to go under the bridge between now and 2050 in our pursuit of, of getting to net zero. I guess without going into every single piece of the detail, what, what are, I guess, some of the key things that we're going to need to do as a society to actually achieve net zero? Well, the, the clue is a little bit in the, the way that it's framed in the net. So you have to do both sides of that equation. We need to stop emitting, which means stopping using fossil fuels, oil, coal, gas, petrol, diesel, as quickly as we can. The longer we take to do that, the more damage that we're going to lock in over the long term. So there is no such thing as a, a drop-dead deadline of, oh, if you don't hit this particular number by 2030, it's game over. That's not the case. Every single tonne matters. Every thing that we can reduce and the quicker we can go, the, the better it means that the outcome that we end up with. So we need to swap for non-polluting alternatives where we can uh, or find other ways of doing things that don't, you know, that, that involve just different ways of doing things. For energy emissions, electrification is going to be a really key part of it, particularly in New Zealand where we've got really abundant renewable energy resources and then that electricity can be used for, for heat, for transport, for industrial processes and all sorts of things. The second part of it is that we need to also restore ecosystems so that that draws down CO2 back out of the atmosphere as those trees grow. Um, that's not an excuse to delay the emission reductions. And in New Zealand's policy, we, we currently have that set up wrong, in my view, where emitters can you know use plantation pine credits to instead of having to reduce emissions and actually what the climate demands is that we do both of these things if we're going to actually keep temperature globally where it needs to be. The third thing that we need to do is actually um, look at other gases. So there are New Zealand's targets are actually we have what's called a split gas target. So we have net zero target for these long-lived gases like carbon dioxide that accumulate long-term in the atmosphere. And we have a separate target for biogenic methane, which is mostly from livestock. And that's because that doesn't accumulate in the atmosphere the same way. It stays in the atmosphere for a short time and then it comes out again. But it still causes a huge amount of warming while it's up there. And um, for New Zealand, it causes actually the, the majority of the warming that New Zealand's responsible for comes from livestock methane. So it's a really important thing. And the, the really positive thing is if we make changes that can have a pretty immediate impact on reducing warming, if we, if we don't put as much up, then um, it doesn't have as much of a warming impact. So those are the, the three main areas, stop emitting, restore ecosystems, and also reduce, but not they don't have to get to net zero, but reduce emissions from these other gases. I'm really interested in, I guess, looking at how big of a challenge that it, 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 it might be. Um, so I did a, a podcast episode last year with Rod Carr, the, the, the chairman of the Climate Change Commission. It wasn't specifically about getting to net zero, but he made a, I thought this this comment he made was, was really interesting about the challenges of doing it. So I just thought I'd read it out and we can push on from there. Um, Rod Carr said, I would not underestimate the challenge that humanity faces in decarbonizing our livelihoods and lifestyles 
the fossil fuel technology that has been developed and deployed largely since the middle of the 19th century is incredibly powerful as a source of energy. And we have embedded that in our civilization and the way we earn our livings and how we live our lives. And that transition is going to be costly and that transition needs to be done with urgency. And the consequence is that relative prices will change. Um, the price of high emissions lifestyles will rise and the vulnerability of high emissions livelihoods will increase. So I guess... I thought that was a good point from which to 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 go into what the the transition is going to mean for our households and lifestyles in New Zealand. Yeah, so Rod Carr is you know absolutely right that it means that high emissions lifestyles and activities become more expensive and more difficult. But that doesn't mean that our lifestyles and our activities need to, to become more expensive and more difficult if there are low emissions ways of doing things instead. So it's a question of finding what are the other ways to do things that don't emit. So while, you know, I agree with Rod, you should not underestimate how embedded fossil fuels are in our economy and society, um, both both in terms of the technology, the, the way that the, um, you know, the investment flows, the ownership, all of those things. But there are alternatives, and many of them are actually cheaper already today if you look at the total uh, cost of ownership, the total lifetime costs. So this is things like electric vehicles, heat pumps, electric household appliances, but also in business and commercial applications and in, in industry it's starting to happen. You see New Zealand Steel starting to to say, look, we can invest in low carbon processes and that's going to set us up better for the future so it's not we've just got to be careful when we use this phrase of things costing more because a lot of the time that actually means that a really significant investment needs to be made because a lot of these low carbon solutions are more expensive upfront the kind of high capital cost things and have a payoff over the long term in terms of low running costs and you know a classic example of that is an electric vehicle where on a, a life cycle basis it is already cheaper to buy an EV than it is to buy the petrol or diesel equivalent vehicle um, but they're more expensive on the forecourt but much less expensive to run and there's a lot of things in the kind of this future low carbon economy that are like that. The the real there is a real social risk though in that in that it's because this is about this upfront investment those of us who are quite well off and can find that capital to invest or you know can convince the banks to lend it to us because we're good credit risk we have access to those new technologies and those alternatives that save us money while poorer households and communities get left behind and they end up being the ones that pay the higher costs of of fossil fuels for example our Emissions Trading Scheme in New Zealand puts a price on fossil fuels to try and encourage change. But um, for those individuals and communities that don't have options to change, that just causes pain, you know, rather than providing a good signal. So um, that's really one of the key tasks for government is to think about how to design the policy and the financing tools to make sure that everyone can transition. But I would say we do need to remind ourselves that we... New Zealand, you know, we shouldn't be feeling too sorry for ourselves and saying that this is hard and, oh, can we go a bit slower? This is a challenge that every single country around the world is facing. Um, and we in New Zealand, even if, 
you know, we don't feel it sometimes. We are a rich country globally. If you think about from a global perspective in this climate change challenge, we are a developed country. We do have the resources to do this. It's just a case of designing the policy well and making sure that um, it doesn't exacerbate the kind of existing inequities that we have in within New Zealand. Yeah, I think really interesting point there is in terms of, I guess, taking, I guess, the, the government and the policymakers taking the public with them on, on the journey. And you talk there, I guess, about lower income people and households and the challenges there. So, I mean, are we looking at a situation where you think, do you think there's going to need to be quite a lot of subsidies on, on offer um, to help out those people? So, you know, there are different tools that the government governments can use. You can They can use pricing, so you can make polluting things more expensive. You can use regulations and just kind of only make clean things available. And we do that already with, like, appliance standards. When you go and buy a refrigerator at the shop, there's actually a minimum level of efficiency that they have to meet so that people aren't just wasting money when they buy things. Um and then the other one is is subsidies. And subsidies are not necessarily a bad thing if you can if you can kind of work it through and show that the societal benefit from making the transition outweighs the the cost of the you think of it again as this government investment in terms of making the transition happen. So you know, New Zealand and the New Zealand government, we're responsible for our emissions. Um to make this transition to low emissions, we need to bring the whole of society with us. And if some parts need to be subsidised, then that's kind of part of the overall way of making the policy package work. Um, and an interesting example is in the United States. So they've got a political system which is just never going to price emissions anytime soon. They're not going to have carbon taxes or emissions trading schemes at the national level because they're just not going to get that through their Congress. But what they have got through their Congress is this giant kind of tax act called the Inflation Reduction Act, which provided over $300 billion worth of um, subsidies for low-carbon activities of all kinds, ranging from you know people building battery factories through to consumers installing heat pumps and so on. And so they've very much approached it from the perspective of... Um, we just need to make these things happen. And, you know, the subsidies can help people over that initial hurdle of the capital cost. But they're not just throwing money in it. They have actually done the calculations to show that the payoff from that transition, the benefits exceed the costs. So obviously, as already noted, the agricultural industry is is the, the biggest emitter in New Zealand. That's the one that gets talked about the most in terms of, I guess, the key industries in, in the economy. I guess, firstly, what, in your view, needs to happen with um, the agricultural industry to get us to get it to, to net zero? And, I mean, obviously the challenge here is that um, it's a big chunk of the economy and people are going to continue to need to eat. So uh, there's, the, I guess, the balancing and challenges within all of that as well. Yeah, sure. No, food systems are a, are a huge part of the, the global climate challenge. You know, when you you wind your way forward to what the world is going to look like in 2050 and there might be 9 billion people, how do 
we collectively feed 9 billion people while having um, emissions that are you know, going to keep temperature under 1.5 degrees. It's a, it's a huge part of the challenge, and it's actually going to be a significant focus at the, there are the, the annual climate negotiations meeting coming up in the first two weeks in December. The food systems is going to be a, a major challenge there, so you'll probably hear a lot about how things need to change and how it could work coming out of that. Um, for New Zealand, I guess the first thing is that... Um, because agricultural methane is not one of these long-lived gases, it's not. It doesn't it doesn't come into the same net zero bucket as fossil fuels, but it does need to reduce. So, for global scenarios consistent with 1.5 degrees warming, which is the the level that the scientists are telling us we should be trying our utmost to start to to reach. Um, but even if we don't, every like I said before, every ton matters you know every 0.1 degrees matters so we we do our best um, but in scenarios consistent with 1.5 globally agricultural methane reductions need to reduce by 24 to 47 percent what that means for New Zealand share is actually not a discussion that we've properly had to be honest so our legislation has that 24 to 47 percent range in it but there's never really been an attempt to say, okay, well, what is the fair share for New Zealand? So on the one hand, you could argue that we have relatively efficient production um, and we're exporting. On the other hand, you can argue, well, look, we're a developed country. We've got a greater capacity to, um, to pay and to invest. And the Paris Agreement says that we should be focusing on equity, not just on you know, cost minimisation. But that's something that's going to be a debate actually in the next 12 months. So in 2024, the Climate Change Commission is going to be looking at those targets in our Climate Change Response Act and saying, you know, are those are those still correct? Should we be adjusting them? So that's going to be a really interesting debate as to, you know, what really is New Zealand's fair share there. But one of the real pressures that we're seeing is actually coming from international supply chains rather than the New Zealand government imposing one target or another. You know, international companies like Nestle and Danone want to see on-farm emission reductions in their supply chains, and they are asking for that, and that is going to drive a lot of change. So while we are a food-producing nation and we are going to have to continue to be a food-producing nation because climate impacts are going to hit production capacity and some of the other parts of the world. We, there's nothing that says that we have to keep producing high emissions food. We shouldn't assume that that's what the world is going to want. We should be thinking about both how to reduce the emissions of what we produce now and whether there are other low emissions food that we could be using our land for. When we were preparing for this podcast, um, you made the comment that an interesting aspect is that there are very different um, visions of what net zero means, from roughly replacing our existing economy with low emissions alternatives to more radical overhaul of society. The emissions reduction need slash goal is clear, but the replacement future is up to us to decide. I think that's an interesting comment, and I'd just be keen to hear you talk a bit more about, about what you mean there. Yeah, uh, when you just say net zero, that means a, it's a very sort of scientific thing about a balance of gases. You know, we're not emitting any more 
CO2, long-lived gases, CO2 to the atmosphere than is being taken out. But the how you go about that, there are definitely options and there are very, very different views around what the best way forward is and even what feasible way forwards are. So there's, there's kind of a spectrum. One extreme end of the spectrum, what some people would call sort of extreme techno-optimists who say, oh, look, new technologies will just replace everything that we currently use and we'll carry on and, you know, nobody's going to notice the difference. Um, and then at the other end of the long spectrum is kind of almost like, an, you know, an extreme degrowth uh, perspective which says technology is is just not going to be the answer. What we need to do is to actually just fundamentally reconstruct the way that we run society, shrink our energy use until it reaches such a point as we're kind of in balance with, with nature. Um, I would say that most climate people, including myself, sit somewhere more in the middle where it, there's a recognition that a huge part of this whole climate change issue is about the structure of society and the way that we are encouraged to just continue to consume stuff and have ever-increasing economic activity and that drives a lot of emissions essentially and so we, we are going to in the you know in these coming decades we are going to have to think about how we structure society and what, what that could be different and so on but to me that seems like a really hard problem <laughs> you know if you think that changing a technology is hard try changing a society you know this is um and in the meantime so we have to have those hard conversations and be thinking about you know what what is it that we want society to look like how can we live more in balance with the ecosystem that supports our supports us as part of, of it. But in the meantime, as we make that transition, we should try and get rid of every emission that we can. And some of that does involve, you know, if there are technologies available and becoming available, we should be using every single one of them to try and hold emissions down as much as we can. Another area that I think is really interesting is obviously in New Zealand is a, is a small, um, isolated country, um, and we're, we we love New Zealanders traditionally love to travel, and also we're a trading nation, so we send a lot of exports overseas, and we import a lot of stuff from overseas too. So that obviously requires shipping and also um, aeroplanes, aviation. So they, they they currently burn a lot of fossil fuels. Um, so what will the push to net zero, I guess, mean for um, our desires to travel and also uh, sending our exports overseas? So in terms of goods and exports, um, things that are shipped, the, the transport emissions don't tend to be the major, the major issue in terms of the emissions. Although, as I said, global supply chains are asking for all emissions from, you know, the farm gate, well, on farm, through to shipping to all be counted and to be be thought about. So there will need to be, um, you know, robust answers to how we're dealing with the emissions to do with international shipping. It's much more of an issue when you're talking about um, air freight. So it will become very much, a, you know, a, perhaps a social question mark around air freighted goods and whether that really is something that, you know, people want to be buying. Um, for and for for our travel, 
this is quite honestly part of the story of New Zealand being a rich country. It's like there is a it's a very tiny proportion of the world's population who flies on aeroplanes at all, let alone takes regular holidays uh, internationally. So uh, we are by definition kind of at the at the rich end of the world if we were if we are even in this position of having to deal with this problem. And it means that we actually have, as New Zealand, the resources to, we do have the resources to deal with it as a a rich country. Now, it's not easy technologically. Air New Zealand kind of has a commitment to be net zero in 2050 and is looking at sustainable aviation fuels and electric flights for short hops and um, asking the questions around, can you have really robust long-term forestry offsets and things like that? But... It is something that is going to be one of the big challenges and something that I think I know has, is on the on the radar of the tourism industry as well. So it's not just our holidays, it's people's willingness to come here as a long, long destination. Um, but on the trade side, there's a whole other aspect, which is just the way that trade is being linked increasingly to climate. So the use of trade agreements to kind of enforce action on climate or to build willingness to act on climate. And a really good example of that is the New Zealand EU Free Trade Agreement, which is um, currently working its way through the European Parliament. But that contains provisions in it where both sides kind of agree to uphold their Paris Agreement obligations and not to backtrack on environmental regulation in order to promote trade and so on. So there's a there is very much a sense that the whole concept of international trade is going to have to take climate impacts into account as we go forward. Just in terms of the broader international commitment to net zero by 2050, um, I think I saw the number 130 countries have, have signed up to this. I'm not sure if that is the current or most recent one. But I'm just interested to, to talk a little bit about where the rest of the world is at with this, especially the big um, economies and big emitters. Um, or I guess I'm thinking there primarily of China, the United States and India. Um, and, and is there any form of agreed independent international measuring of where we're all at? Yep. So the United States has a target for a 50% reduction in 2030 on their way to net zero 2050. And as I said before, they they are approaching it through investment, through this Inflation Reduction Act type approach, as well as various state level laws that, that control, control things. Um, China has, and India both have net zero targets for slightly after 2050, um, kind of acknowledging their development status. I mean, India is particularly, I mean, if you think about the challenge they face, every developed country in the world has gotten to be a developed country by using the really concentrated energy and fossil fuels. This is what we've done. We've burnt fossil fuels in order to get rich, and we still burn a lot of fossil fuels and emit a lot, (laughs) and are now going to try and reduce that. Now, India um, emits... Uh, so, so our per capita CO2 emissions in New Zealand are around seven, eight tonnes per capita. And in India, last I looked, it was about two tonnes per capita. So the challenge ahead of them is tremendous. It's like they're going to have to develop um, and go through that process of being, you know, an economy that 
provides better for the needs of its people and become a kind of a middle-income country without using fossil fuels. And so that's this massive investment challenge ahead of them. And understandably, they've taken the perspective of being, you know, a poor country and saying, we cannot do this on our own. We are going to need finance and support. You know, you are asking us to do something that you did not do yourselves. And you are still emitting five times more than we are for, you know, for, for many developed countries. So there is a, um, while some of these countries are large emitters because they have high population, um, I do think it's unfair to then say, well, they're not acting. If you actually think about, you know, what the challenges that they have and how it is that we get them to where they need to be. We all, the, the world needs to get to net zero sometime around the middle of the century. And we have to find a way to help countries like India get there. And that is that is a much, much bigger challenge than our own little domestic pathway that we're going to be on. New Zealand sometimes has a very insular view of this challenge and just thinks about how many wind farms we're going to need and, you know, what the balance between cows and trees looks like. But actually what our influence is in trying to shift the world is, is the much bigger piece. Yeah, absolutely. I guess just focusing back on us in New Zealand, are you confident that New Zealand will get to net zero by 2050? And do you think our collective mindset is ready for the challenge? I think that New Zealand is actually one of the easiest places in the world to get to net zero because of our abundant renewable energy resources, because of the amount of land that could be um, restored to Indigenous forests, you know, we um, a lot. Actually, a lot of our CO two emissions since pre-industrial times are from land clearance, not from from fossil fuel use. And we see in Tairawhiti a lot of land that should never have been cleared. And so there's a lot of trees and that can go back. Uh, we have all of that potential. It's totally doable. We also have a legal framework in place uh, through our Climate Change Response Act, so the Zero Carbon Bill, you'll remember that went through a few years ago. And that sets stepping stones toward 2050 to try and keep governments on track. So you talked about the incoming national-led government, the national having a commitment to net zero in 2050. They have also really firmly committed during the election campaign to the interim milestones. So we have carbon budgets for every five years, so till 2025 and then till 2030 and then till 2035, that step down to reach the net zero target. And they've they've said that they are committed to those. And that's actually where things are going to bite because those short-term targets hold politicians' feet to the fire in terms of acting now, not just making plans for later. It's all very easy to make a plan for how we might do something in 2050. But if you have a concrete target for something that you have to do by 2025 and by 2030, then that's very real, particularly for an incoming government that probably still hopes to be the government in 2030. Um, so we, we, we have that framework in place, and I think that that is going to be incredibly helpful in keeping us on track, And it, but it, that's going to be tested as, as we you know see things start to get hard. I would, however, say that our, the way that we express net zero in New Zealand is, I think, a bit wrong because we do allow unlimited um, use of pine removals, actually. So pine plantation forests count exactly the same way as an emission to the atmosphere. We need to be doing 
both reducing emissions and reforestation, not trading those off against one another. Now, looking back at the the global picture again, um, you know, if if we do get to net zero around the middle of the century, I mean, obviously, as you say, some some countries have different targets and obviously much bigger challenges um, than than we indeed have in New Zealand. But if we do get there around about the target dates, what happens next? And if we don't, what happens? Well, if we do, it's actually not the end of the story. It's just a particular point that we pass through because the, the science tells us that when we get to that near zero point, we actually will have already emitted too much CO2 for the kinds of temperatures that, that we want to to keep, you know, our climate systems livable, basically. I mean, there was a great, there's been some really, um, you know, if you look at the language that the scientists are using around this, um, the, the IPCC, the, the science body, when it put out its latest report in March, the, the title of the press release was Urgent Climate Action Can Secure a Livable Future for All, which implies pretty strongly that if we don't take urban urgent climate action, the future is not going to be livable for all, right? This is this is serious. Um, the Secretary-General of the United Nations said, we're in a fight for, we're in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. So there is a, an absolute degree of urgency and seriousness that's being given to us by the the science and even if we get to that net zero we will have emitted too much this this phase after that is actually to be net negative we're going to have to continue to draw down that excess co2 from the atmosphere through native regeneration native forest regeneration but also through technology and we should be starting to plan for that phase now because it's actually only a few decades away so you know net zero is just a waypoint on the way to that longer-term future. And if we don't, well, hopefully we do it as soon as possible. It's like, like I said, it's like um, climate impacts just keep getting worse until we get to the point of stopping putting more into the atmosphere. If we wait too long until our society is kind of unable to function because of extreme heat and issues with water and crops and... um, you know, insurability and all of these things, then we will start to reduce emissions in an unplanned way. And that's not going to be pretty. So I hope we can go about it proactively. And that's what we need to throw all our effort at. Well, look, thanks a lot for that, Christina. That's Christina Hood, the head of Compass Climate. And I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.